Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining me today is my good friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. It wouldn't be a Monday without you. Always on my calendar, Vago. Uh, thanks very, very much. We appreciate you uh, making time for us. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage, uh, including of the Air Force Association's recent Air Warfare Symposium. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, Byron, uh, Russo-Ukraine war uh, is now in its uh, 16th day, I think, if math serves uh, correctly, as Vladimir Putin uh, continues to escalate the brutality of his campaign, uh, as well as sharpen his rhetoric, right? Making a specific threat that sending any weapons to Ukraine is causus belli. Uh, certainly an interesting development, right, for all of us who feared that us backing away from the plan to send uh, fighters the Polish uh, fight, uh, Polish MiGs uh, to Ukraine would just empower Putin to sort of push uh, push ahead and sort of say, okay, well, no arms uh, exports um, are uh, uh, permissible. Uh, he even made a veiled threat about global commercial aviation uh, traffic. Uh, meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, and uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, have invited Ukrainian pres- uh, President Vladimir uh, Zelensky to address a joint session of Congress on, on Wednesday. Where are we in this conflict and what's catching your attention as the Russians definitely sharpen the violence of their attack, expand it to the west of the country, um, You know, make it clear that they're sending Chechen uh, as well as former Wagner group, right? I mean, I think they're called Lida, uh, now in, into the country to sort of sow uh, chaos. Um, you know, we we saw a, a traitor be assigned. To, you know, the the mayor of Mariupol was uh, arrested. Uh, the pro-Ukrainian, uh, ethnically Russian Mariupol mayor was let, um, arrested, and a um, you know a collaborator put in charge. Where, where are we in this campaign, as far as you're concerned? Well, overall, I think it's still pretty static, Vago. I mean. U.S. Department of Defense is saying what the the U.K. Ministry of Defense is saying, and there really hasn't been a lot uh, other than, you know, the very violent attacks on on major cities. But in terms of operations on the ground, it's really pretty static. Um, You know, the Ukrainians are still showing uh, very competent tactical use, but I wouldn't call you know, some of the things that they're doing, they're more counterattacks as opposed to a counteroffensive. And I'm not sure that they have the capacity to really roll back um, Russian forces. Uh, and I think the other thing I have to be careful here, we really don't know um, how, how Ukraine's military is really faring. I mean, there, there's a lot of imagery of Russian equipment that's been destroyed or abandoned. Um, but you know, I think we're seeing one side of this. We don't know how Ukraine is faring. I mean, they're holding ground, which I suppose is, is a bottom line testament. But, you know, these strikes, for example, into far the, the cruise missile attack over the weekend on this uh, facility near Lviv, you know, what kind of equipment did, did that destroy? What what were the Western arm stockpiles that might have been in that facility that, that went up? Um, so there's just there's still a lot we don't know. Again, you know, I'm kind of echoing, you know, I think what a lot of other people have said. It's just remarkable how incompetent um, 
the Russians have been in their tactical use of their forces and, and kind of their overall strategic objectives and guidelines. And I, I just find it, um, I mean, I think the bottom line, you know, this is going to go on for a while as much as, um, you know, the market kind of springs into an optimistic mode every time there's, there's any headline about negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. You know, I was thinking this morning of the old missive that the market has predicted uh, 10 of the last three recessions. And so this kind of eternal hope that, um, oh, there's going to be a ceasefire and this whole thing is going to be in the rearview mirror. We don't have to worry about, you know, all its ultimate ramifications. Um, I don't think either side has really gotten the other to the point where they can really start um, compelling the other to, to agree to maximalist or near maximalist uh, uh, demands. So the, the fighting is going to go on here. And, and probably we'll, we'll kind of check it, you know, in April, but I think that's probably when, when if I reassess what my odds and probabilities are about how this could all play out, I'm leaning much more towards a, a negotiated outcome on this. And again, it's just because I don't think either side has really demonstrated a, a decisive set of military views that's going to bring the other uh, to cryocal. Um, I, and we've seen that in, uh, you know, that folks say, you know, some of these negotiations are encouraging. Uh, there are reports, for example, that say that Zelensky is, uh, you know, leaning toward um, a, a neutrality position for Ukraine, understanding that, um, you know, even though the EU may be possible, NATO uh, accession is unlikely. Uh, on, on the other hand, there's a sense that permitting um, Russia to get its aims, the recognition of Crimea as Russian, of Donbass, of uh, of Luhansk, as well as a corridor, basically rewards aggression, right? I mean, Russia invaded territory and then officially gets uh, gets to annex it uh, permanently and and by agreement. Um, there are those, you know, you and I talk on a regular basis, Byron. You know, the the concern, um, right? Dmitry Alperovitch has, has said this, Masha. Gessen has said this sort of like, hey, you know, you don't want to push Putin too far uh, because uh, that would be uh, problematic. And yet there are people who say, look, I mean, the reality is he'll push you backwards through your own goalposts. I say that all the time. I said it on Friday's show as well. Right. I mean, what's your sense in sort of the right mix here of pressure and, and pain uh, in order to be able to drive this change? Obviously, the, the main pressure point right now is through continuing to support the Ukrainian military. Um, I really do think if, if Russia had prepared for this war on the presumption it was going to be a very short, quick campaign, they probably didn't do much to prepare their defense industry for that. And I think that's that to me is one of the most fascinating parts of this uh, whole question about the export controls, the sanctions, um, the, the really profound actions that have been taken against Russia that are going to absolutely have an impact on its uh, defense industrial capacity. Um, their reliance on German, Japanese machine tools. Uh, you know, there are some comments that I posted in one of my notes about the, um, the absence of uh, capacity for basic things like ball bearings um, in, in the Russian economy. And so I think there's a part to me where this is, you know, Putin sitting back, it's like, Great, you know, you're fighting this war in Ukraine, maybe you do get Donbass and Crimea out of this, but you're gonna be looking at a military that might be on the same trajectory that Iraq's was uh, 
during the 1990s. I mean, if, if, if they really are starved off, and oh, by the way, they're probably gonna have a pretty significant brain drain as well too. Um, I, I just think it's gonna, in, in some ways I would agree, it may make Putin more dangerous over the long term because of the, uh, the fallback position is going to be greater reliance on nuclear weapons. That kind of returns Russia to, you know, I think the way they were, they were you know, what, what their defense was in the 1990s when their military was uh, in pretty poor shape. And that alone is a concern. Um, but I, and, and they're going to have a range of other security concerns and issues. I, I'm still fascinated by the whole question of, for example, remittances um, that uh, people in Central Asia earn working in Russia. You know, what does that do to stability in Kazakhstan, for example, or, or other, other Central Asian republics? How are they going to sustain their, their support of the Assad regime in Syria? Um, so these are, there, there's a, a short-term issue, which to me is just keep the pressure up through Ukraine. And then a longer term, you know, kind of boa constrictor strategy here, which is, uh, you know, the, the economic warfare that I think inevitably has to impact their military. Because I am not aware of, of any reports of Russia having stockpiled uh, machine tools or going on these big buying sprees um, you know, in the way, for example, they may have tried to build up their own reserves in, in anticipation of Western sanctions. I'm just not aware of reports that they have, uh, you know, taken the same steps to kind of insulate their own defense industrial base from, uh, from the actions that have ensued from their invasion of, of Ukraine. There are concerns that Putin may yet still act out uh, across or, or into somehow into NATO territory, right? I mean, obviously, that's a heightened sense of concern. Uh, we're on a chat group that includes friends uh, all over Europe uh, and the United States. Um, and and this, uh, you know, Baltic worry that that Biden may, you know, that there's a, you know, in their view, sort of a 50-50 shot that Biden goes Chamberlain uh, at, at the at the end of the day. Um, you know, what, what's your, you know, and, and a lot of that conversation, uh, so our audience understands, you know, it's, it's sort of like, does, does Russia have enough gas in the tank to do anything anywhere else uh, at, at this point, right, to be a, to be a threat anywhere else, uh, right? I mean, Ukrainians reporting three two-star Russian generals have been killed uh, on the front line, in part because the fighting is going so badly, these guys are going literally to the front in order to try to um, you know, make make stuff happen. What's your sense as somebody who pays close attention to double I, double S and does your own research on how much gas Russia's got left in the tank because they've already well, turned to Beijing asking for military assistance? Yeah. And, and, you know, of course, Beijing denied that. I mean, I, I presume probably what Russia would, would need or what, could, what Russia could get from China that they could rapidly ingest would be um, potentially rocket artillery munitions, I'm not sure. Um, I'd have to look at, you know, what is a grad fire? What's the Chinese equivalent of a grad? Um, and the other thing would be logistics vehicles. Uh, I'm sure China could provide trucks, tractor trailers, um, you know, that, that would be fairly easy for a Russian soldier to operate. And, uh, but, you know, that, that's kind of to be determined. Um, I think the, you, you know, 
I think this whole question of sanctions and how Putin may be cornered here, if you think about how this played out in like 1940, 1941, um, in the opening days of World War II, some of the actions undertaken by Germany and Japan were really driven by, uh, they were cut off from, from critical commodities. And so, you know, the, the German invasion of Norway and the, the, you know, the drive and frankly, the English and uh, there was an Anglo-French force that was planning the same thing would seize Narvik um, to deny the Germans iron ore. And uh, Germany kind of struck first with that and ultimately secured that, that, uh, that resource. And then obviously Japan, you know, it's really on the ropes um, in the summer of 1941 with the announcement of U.S. oil and, and petroleum products embargo, and then they were losing access to resources from Southeast Asia. So I don't know at what point, I, I don't see the same kind of drivers for Russia right now. You know, what, what there are commodities per se in the Baltic. It doesn't really improve their, their military position. It might you know, relieve Kaliningrad if that becomes important, but there's not another logical thing that they could do that would give them access to some of the things that they're going to need to sustain their, their military, their economic power going forward. And that's why, you know, you know, sure, could there be a demonstration, you know, the, the age old escalate to de-escalate that the Russians undertake, but, you know, the idea that they're going to come pouring across into Poland or Romania, I mean, I, I, I think they'd have their heads handed to them uh, and that, you know, their, their air force, really, if you look at it on paper, yeah, it's got 1300 aircraft, but I think, you know, maybe 300 of those are more modern Su-34s uh, and Su-35s. Um, I think, you know, that, that would be a relatively short-lived uh, air campaign if Russia tried to move. If, if Russia tried to move west or Russia tried to move north, I, I think the, the correlation of forces against them right now is it was marginally, you know, favorable probably before Ukraine. It's uh, very unfavorable right now. And that's why I think there'll be the bluster and the threats and the demonstrations. But the idea that they're going to come pouring across the border with an expectation of high degree of success they can't have that now, uh, given what they've evidenced in Ukraine. Had they, had they swept into Kiev and, and accomplished everything that they expected to accomplish in the first week of the war, we'd be having a very different conversation on this. But I like a lot of people who look at this just kind of, you know, amazed at how, how poorly the Russians have performed here. I think everybody is stunned how badly they've performed, right? I mean, we've girded, we're ready for cyber attacks that haven't come. Uh, obviously, there's a sense that the United States Cyber Command, uh, National Security Agency, you know, GCHQ, right? I mean, our allies and partners are all working really, really hard over there uh, to, um, um, to safeguard the United States, right? I mean, to de defend forward uh, and indeed defend Europe, uh, you know, forward as well. But um, it, it also may be that they're just not as good as we thought they were. Um, that they were good at doing certain things, uh, infiltrating. Uh, but I mean, some of their operations have been very successful and we don't know the sort of bombs that they may have installed, right? I mean, time is on their side because they're the ones dri driving this campaign. And a word from our sponsors, GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. 
I, I want to change gears a little bit and very just very quickly ask you a China uh, question. Jake Sullivan, U.S. National Security Advisor, is meeting with Yang Jiechi, uh, China's top uh, diplomat uh, in Rome at the time that we're taping this. The readout is not yet out. Um, how does the China dynamic change this in, in your mind? Right. I mean, on the one hand, we're still trying to abide by the Kissinger and keep them separated. Don't let them unite. We have to, you know, but increasingly they're finding common cause and we're in a position that we have to stand up to China while actually beating a hot war that Russia is involved in, right? I mean, so these guys are aligning and they are likely going to talk, target the dollar as a reserve currency, right? To figure out how to get around those sanctions. Likely Jake Sullivan's message to the Chinese is, we're going to have to turn our gun sight onto you and you don't want that either. And the Chinese may be willing to say, yeah, well, you know, the Emirates aren't turning their back on Russian money. Right, that's an important banking center. Is the United States going to declare a global war on all places like that? I mean, my guess is we could. I guess we could succeed, especially if we can get the euro, the yen, the pound backing us to stay as the reserve currency. I mean, what's your sense on how the Chinese element of this plays, and how much longer we are able, we will be able to? You know, I mean, there's always been this fear of we may pull the sanction lever only to have it break off in our hands. Well, it's, that's a really fascinating outcome of all this, right? Uh, Matthew Klein, who writes a newsletter called The Overshoot, has a March 8th article called The Implications of Unrestricted Financial Warfare. And he really raises these questions about, well, you know, if Russia thought it could stash away all this, you know, reserve currencies and gold, and that was going to protect them, and that gets yanked uh, from Russia, you know, at what point does China start drawing the same conclusions? Then he raises a couple other countries that, you know, Saudi Arabia, I mean, in, in, a, in a different geopolitical environment, the same thing could happen to them. So he raises some really interesting points about, and I think this is where we really are. This is why this whole thing has really occupied so much of my time, Vago. I, I think it's just a major, major turning point in you know, the way the world has been structured since the fall of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. And what Matthew basically concludes is, you know, China's going to be doing everything they can to, to make sure that they're not on the same sort of receiving end that Russia now finds itself on. So a lot of that arguably China had already been trying to do uh, by building their own domestic capacities. Um, but, you know, the West is going to have to do the same thing, too. If you think you're safe because you've got, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 billion dollars stashed away somewhere, um, you know, I should change. If you think you're safe because you've got, uh, yeah, four or five trillion dollars uh, stashed away, which in Matthew's estimate, that's, that's kind of the reserve currencies out of a total reserve, global reserve of 14 trillion. Those, those are reserve currencies excluding, excluding Russia that might be at risk if, if this uh, weaponization of, of the financial system continues, they're gonna invest in it differently. And um, they're gonna invest in their own defense industries. They're gonna invest in their own foundational industries. They're gonna invest in their people um, through education, uh, you know, physical fitness, all these basic things that we've kind of forgotten. Um, I say we as 
uh, an American society, I think a lot of European societies that, you know, it, it's not money in the bank that really provides you security. It's these other foundational, really the sinews of power that, that provide you the resilience and the ability to, you know, avoid the outcome that you're seeing in a place like Ukraine right now. So I'm just very curious, you know, how does this impact? We talk about it a lot, but for example, share buybacks that companies undertake. You know, I'm looking at the headlines today that Leonardo <clears throat> is announcing a, uh, I think a 200 million euro investment in, in defense electronics in Europe. You know, are you going to see more of that <clears throat> where assets are employed in physical infrastructure and investment as opposed to, you know, kind of paper transactions to boost earnings per share, for example. Byron, we've got a couple of minutes left. I want to take you to the U.S. financial uh, uh, side of things or U.S. defense side of things. We've heard from Pentagon Comptroller Mike McCord. Uh, you wrote about that thoughtfully in your note last night uh, about the 23 budget. What's your sort of sense on where we are, where we're going uh, in it? I think the you know, look, whatever the, the top line number had been reported out. I think the fact that, you know, we finally got an FY22 budget, well, you'd expect it's going to take, you know, a week or two to kind of update the fiscal 23 budget for all the 22 numbers uh, that, that have been enacted. Um, you know, Mike at McAleese last week didn't, he really didn't know when the budget was going to be released. My own gut, you know, you're probably talking about last week in March, maybe early April. I, I don't think you... I don't think it'll be in May, you know, a la the, the first uh, <clears throat> budget that the Biden administration submitted <clears throat> in its first year in office. Um, and I think, you know, whatever is in the budget submission, it's going to be higher. I don't know how, how it's going to be higher. Um, we're really, it, it's obviously going to be influenced by Russia and Ukraine. Um, it may go back to your, your comment earlier, Bago, you know, about China and how they kind of fit in all this thing. I mean, if I'm China, I definitely want to have Russia <clears throat> uh, remain in some kind of fight or, or military capable position, because I think once once Russia, if Russia were to evaporate as, as a military threat, <clears throat> that really would be the, the, uh, the beginning of the ability of the US and European countries to, to fully array their defense capability against China. And I don't think that's something uh, that, that makes whatever they want to accomplish even more difficult. So um, I, I think the discussions about, you know, we're, we're going to cut the army to fund the Navy and the Air Force. Uh, I think a lot of that just, uh, I, don't, I don't buy it in the kind of environment that uh, is likely to exist so long as Putin is in power. Uh, and uh, let's take a minute uh, to look at the week ahead uh, and what you think uh, is interesting. I want to give a shout out uh, to uh, the event by Jim Lewis uh, at the Center for Strategic and International uh, Studies. Uh, Jim uh, regularly joins us on the Cyber Report. Uh, great discussion led off by um, uh, Senator Mark Warner. Uh, the chairman of the uh, Senate uh, Select Intelligence Committee um, was absolutely great. Chris Painter uh, is on the program and, and um, uh, Greg Ratray also uh, was on and it was a terrific uh, program. So I suggest people listen to follow it up on, on YouTube. But go ahead, Byron, walk us well, through yeah, just, uh, just other events over CS the week. <clears throat> yeah, CSIS has another an event on food insecurity that I think is a really fascinating uh, subject that has global conflict implications or insecurity implications uh, 
particularly because of the reliance on Middle East countries in Turkey, um, Russian and Ukrainian grain. Um, the Army Chief of Staff, General McConnell, is speaking at the Hudson Institute. I think that's kind of couched as the Army in the Indo-Pacific, but I think it's going to be more broadly, you know, how wh what's going on, how will this kind of change Army expectations going forward, uh, Russia, Ukraine, and obviously China, and Iran possibly. Um, there, there continue to be a couple of different Hask, House Armed Services and Senate Armed Services hearings in preparation for the FY23 budget. These are posture reviews, primarily with combatant commands. And Marine Corps Commandant General Berger uh, speaks March 16th at a Washington Post event, uh, where I'm sure he's also going to be talking about budget issues and the broader ramifications of the Russo-Ukraine war. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Really look forward to uh, having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. All the time, Vago. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.